Hello, friends and enemies. Welcome to the Old Movie Lady podcast. I'm your host, the titular Old Movie Lady, but you can also call me Marg. In the general public, if you ask people to picture Joan Crawford in their mind's eye, well, quite a few people won't know who you're talking about. I met a friend's roommate once. He was a few years younger than me, but we're both millennials. And somehow, Marilyn Monroe came up that evening. This guy looked me straight in the eye and said he didn't know who Marilyn Monroe was because, and I quote, she was before my time. So okay, he definitely wouldn't know who Joan Crawford is, but if we weed those people out, I'd wager that a shocking amount of people won't think of Joan Crawford at all when asked to think about Joan Crawford. They will think about Faye Dunaway, or a drag performer playing Faye Dunaway playing Joan Crawford. Joan's daughter Christina's 1978 book, Mommy Dearest, swiftly demolished Joan's reputation, but it was the 1981 film version that took on a life of its own. It's high camp, it's over the top, it's been transformed into something a lot more fun than a story about child abuse probably ought to be. But I don't begrudge the artistry or the fans' enjoyment of the work or subsequent parodies. This episode is not about her daughter's accusations. I am not able to prove or disprove anyone's version of events. No one is. All we have is belief, for or against. But we were not there, and we do not know. What we do know, for sure, is that, justly or not, the release of the Mommy Dearest book and subsequent film forever demolished Joan's legacy and her carefully constructed image that she spent decades crafting and maintaining with meticulous care. Joan Crawford was a movie star, all caps. She was a product, she was an image, and she was her own creation. It's that creation that I'm going to talk about today. There are many stories about the woman who became Joan Crawford. Many versions of her biography filled with contradictions, with fables, with lies, with moments open to interpretation. I'm going to do my best to tell a very small part of her story cohesively, but with the caveat that there are many unknowables, and as Joan herself at various points in her life was invested in different narratives, she cannot be seen as a wholly reliable narrator either. But I do hope that even if I fail at my cohesive story goal, that what I am able to achieve is a different picture of Joan Crawford in your mind's eye. Not to change your opinion, but to flesh her out as a person and shed some light on the early career of one of the most ambitious women to ever make her way to Hollywood. This is Close Up, Joan Crawford. Lucille Faye LeSueur was born in Texas in the middle of the first decade of the 20th century. As far as I know, no one has ever managed to track down her birth record. 
Anyone who does genealogy knows that this isn't that rare, but I have always wondered if it's a coincidence or the far-reaching power of MGM to hide whatever secrets they please. Maybe that's silly, but I wouldn't put it past them. Her family is on the 1910 census where she is listed as being five years old, but if let's say her stepfather was the one answering the census taker, he may well have just been answering in an offhand way. The boy one is probably eight, the girl one is, uh, five? March 23rd, 1905 or 1906 seems like the most likely birth date. Certainly not 1908, as she later claimed, or 1904, as some biographers have stated. A birth record for her older brother Hal does exist. He was born in early September 1903, so it would not have been technically impossible, but highly, highly unlikely for their mother to have given birth to a surviving baby just six months later. Her father Thomas left the family not long after her birth, or maybe just beforehand, whenever that was specifically, and her mother Anna struggled to support her two young children for a few years, working in a laundry, until she met Henry Casson. He was the manager of a vaudeville theater in Oklahoma. They married around 1909, and as far as Lucille knew, Daddy Casson was her biological father. He nicknamed her Billy a name that she continued to use with close confidants long after she shot to fame as Joan Crawford. She considered Henry a supportive and loving figure in her life, always reflecting on him in adulthood with great affection, and it was at his theater that Billy first fell in love with dance. Dancing was something her mother strongly disapproved of. Really, there wasn't much about Billy that her mother did seem to approve of. Anna heavily favored Hal and would punish Billy for mischief that her brother committed. Anna also blamed Billy for Henry's interest in her. There is some debate among biographers as to whether her stepfather was sexually abusive. But what isn't up for debate is that Anna acted jealous of her own child and any time an adult man would harass Billy, as would happen in the future, her mother would twistedly see this as proof of Billy's badness. A childhood accident where she injured her foot kept Billy out of elementary school for a spell, and after Henry was accused of embezzlement, causing the whole family to have to up sticks and move to Kansas City, her education became even more sporadic. Henry took a job managing a shitty residential hotel, and Anna was forced to return to work in a laundry service. Billy, too, was put to work, spending more time scrubbing floors and doing laundry than she ever seemed to be in a classroom. Eventually, she was sent to a Catholic boarding school during the week, where, in lieu of tuition, she worked in the cafeteria and cleaned rooms. Being the school servant turned Billy into an outcast. She later credited this feeling with her desire to be a performer. Who would look down on her, as she believed her classmates did, if she was famous? Henry and Anna's marriage broke up, and things didn't improve for Billy. After living with her children in a single back room of the laundry where she worked, Anna took up with another man, Mr. Hugh. This new stepfather definitely was one of the total creep variety, 
and rather than just dump the fucker when he tried interfering with Billy then in her early teens, Anna shipped her daughter off to a full-time reform school. The new school was far stricter than the previous one, with the headmistress quick to dole out physical punishment for even minor infractions. And though Billy was eventually given a diploma, it was largely symbolic as she wasn't actually there to attend classes, but again, to work, even more extremely, for her room and board. This mishmash education she received left her feeling self-conscious and less than for the rest of her life. When you look at Joan Crawford's childhood, work is a constant, warmth and stability are not. She certainly wasn't having much fun, though she did sneak out to hang out with boys as a teenager. Mostly, though, she was either working her ass off to help support her family or working her ass off to try and stay in school. After leaving the reform school, she tried her hand at a semester of college. She was recruited for a sorority, which, though she had never thought of joining one before, thrilled her to no end. Billy was crushed when the sorority rescinded their pledge on the grounds that she was again paying for her tuition by working on campus. The message was clear. She was not like these other girls. She didn't belong. Her grades were dismal. Billy quickly dropped out of college in late 1922, early 1923, and began in earnest to pursue dancing. She shacked up with a boyfriend, and, desperate to make ends meet, reportedly did appear nude in some kind of grainy peep-show blue movie. Rumors of this so-called adult film would bubble up a few times in her career, usually by some extortionist who didn't even know what they were talking about. The rumors would swiftly get squashed. Today, it gets mentioned by scandalmongers in an attempt to slut-shame, but hopefully you can see my take coming a million miles away, which is, fuck Anyone who tries to shame a teenage girl who is just trying to afford her next meal. By late 1923, Billy had worked as a chorus girl in various Midwestern establishments and was spotted on stage in a Detroit club by J.J. Schubert, the famous Broadway producer. He was looking for chorus girls for his new show, Innocent Eyes, at the Winter Garden Theater in New York City. Impressed with Billy, he got her on the train immediately. I quite like this snippet from Variety from a review of the show, which opened in early 1924. Twelve girls in the chorus listing are billed as coming from the Casino de Paris. Their names are Parisian enough, though certainly some are not up to the garden's standard. Lucille Lesseur is a Parisian enough name, after all, and I believe this is the first time she used her birth name professionally. When Innocent Eyes went on tour, Lucille stuck around in New York, appearing again as a nightclub dancer and then in Schubert's next production, The Passing Show of 1924. It was there that she was spotted by MGM producer Harry Rapp. Harry was on a talent scouting mission that fall, trying to find new faces to bring to Hollywood. I guess you really have to hand it to him. Harry had an impressive eye. That he even noticed Lucille was a wonder. 
Not only was the passing show only a middling production, but she was in the second row of chorus girls. Still, she got an invitation, along with a few other dancers, to do a screen test at a New York studio in November 1924. She wasn't particularly interested. Lucille's ambitions were strong even then, but they were strongly focused on being a dancer. So she did the screen test and didn't think much else of it, heading back home to her mother's house for the holidays shortly afterwards. It was there that she received a telegram that changed her young life, plainly informing her that she was to head off to Culver City, California, to start her $75 a week contract with MGM. Just after the new year, 1925, she hopped on a train, and she did just that. She was a bit surprised to learn that MGM didn't want her as a dancer, but instead as part of their roster of background beauties. Remember, her truest desire since childhood had been to be famous, to ensure love, respect, and stability that she was missing out on growing up. Dancing had seemed like the path to this goal. She loved doing it, for one, and people responded to her vim and energy. But Lucille saw the opportunity being presented to her, and it was a far bigger opportunity than dancing would ever be. It wouldn't be easy. She didn't know how to act, or even how to navigate Hollywood. But she saw that if she worked hard enough, this could be her ticket to stardom. Uncredited, Lucille appeared as Norma Shearer's body double in Lady of the Night, and a few other uncredited roles followed in early 1925. This was par for the course as an MGM contract player. But Lucille wasn't just hanging around waiting to be called upon to play a nameless model or showgirl in the background. She'd made a decision to figure out Hollywood, and fast. She made friends with as many people on the studio lot as she could and learned from them how to pose for photographs, how to do her makeup slightly better, and how to dress. She took up jogging in a successful attempt to become slimmer. She enthusiastically agreed to do all of the publicity photo shoots the studio arranged for her and went out to Hollywood nightclubs to see and be seen. By March, MGM was confident that they had a promising little player on their hands, but felt that there was one major problem. Her name. Reportedly, it was Wampus member, soon to be its president, Pete Smith, who made the crack that Le Sewer sounded like the sewer. And, you know, once you introduce a thought like that into the conversation, it's hard to claw back positive feelings. Name her and win $1,000, was the contest announced in Movie Weekly. The winning name was Joan Arden. I've heard two versions of what happened next, and I'm not sure which is right. One, there already was an actor named Joan Arden. And two, two contest entries were for Joan Arden, and MGM didn't want to pay double the prize money. Either way, MGM eventually landed on the surname Crawford, which Joan thought sounded like crawfish and despised. Her new name was announced in September. There aren't many mentions of Joan labeled as Lucille in the fan magazines because she hadn't done anything to be a fan of yet. But somewhat amusingly, the September issue, released in August so they couldn't have known, does have a genuinely adorable shot of her with a puppy in her coat pocket, captioned, Pert as a pup in a pocket, 
one might say that Lucille, one L, not two, la, with an A, not an E, sir, is literally putting on the dog. Is putting on the dog a familiar phrase to anyone? The ease of misspelling all sorts of different elements of her original name may indeed have been the driving force behind the new one. But anyway, she was Joan from this point onward. Before the new name, she did have a credited role in Pretty Ladies, starring Zazu Pitts. Her first role released after the adoption of the new stage name, though she doesn't appear to actually be credited, at least in the print I saw, was in The Circle, released in September. It starred Wampus Baby of 1923, Eleanor Boardman, with Joan appearing in a featured role early in the film. You'd be hard-pressed to recognize her. There's a photo of Joan from 1925 that gets posted on ye old internet every couple of months, with the poster saying, This is a photo of Joan Crawford circa 1925, and the people sharpen their knives. It can't be, they holler. You're a liar and a fiend, they scream. That's not Joan, that's so-and-so, you total fool, they scoff. But it is her. She just still had a baby face and unexpected eyebrows. If you watch The Circle or Pretty Ladies, and you can, they're on YouTube, you will see what I mean. It was in Pretty Ladies that she met lifelong friend Myrna Loy, then billed as Myrna Williams. I love Myrna and her wonderful autobiography, Being and Becoming. In it, she wrote of some of the troubles Joan was having at the time. One day, Joan came into my dressing room looking very unhappy. She fell into my lap. We were snowflakes covered in marabou that kept getting in our mouths, and she began to cry. Joan always worried terribly. I did too, but never showed it. Apparently Harry Rapp, the producer who discovered her, had chased her around the desk the night before. She was having a terrible time. MGM really was rife with creeps, it must be acknowledged. Some biographers say that, well, Joan didn't really run away around that table and was perfectly okay with entertaining Harry's advances. If this is true, it made some sense given the company culture over at MGM, other actresses were forming alliances with powerful executives, and most of those alliances had a sexual component. Interestingly, though, it was lovely Paul Byrne who was Joan's greatest ally in these early days. He was generous to a fault, intelligent and cultured, and had the ear of MGM's biggest fish, like Irving Thalberg. And though Paul loved the company of beautiful women, his reputation was as a complete gentleman. After his death, this was attributed to some sort of an impotence problem, though there also was an MGM-orchestrated smear campaign going on, so who knows. Regardless, he was not in Joan's corner in exchange for sexual favors, but he definitely was in her corner. As Joan later said, he recognized something in me that other men didn't care to see. A brain. During this period, while working during the day on the studio lot, Joan was also entering a lot of dance competitions at night, and winning them, too. Dances like the Charleston and others were created in the black community, and by 1925 were becoming extremely popular in segregated white clubs. 
On the other hand, no café entertainment is complete without Lucille Lesseur's exhibition of the Charleston, wrote the January 1926 issue of Picture Play. Lucille, newly rechristened Joan Crawford because it is easier to pronounce, does the tantalizing, fascinating, irritating Charleston as nobody else can. Yes, sir, when it comes to doing those southern steps, Lucille Lesseur Crawford is the lady. Yes, ma'am, she wins all the dancing contests. One autumn evening, while out dancing at a club, Joan met a young man named Mike Cudahy, the heir to a meatpacking fortune. Mike, who turned 18 that November, was considered a pretty boy, and definitely was a partier, without much ambition beyond having a good time. Joan, who had always just barely scraped by, was impressed with his privileged lifestyle. Theirs was a whirlwind romance that continued into the next summer, at least. A new boyfriend, a few dance prizes, and soon, the most important film of her short career thus far. Get ready for another big Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer money winner! Sally, Irene, and Mary, warned the print ad directed at theater owners. Released on December 27, 1925, Sally, Irene, and Mary marked the end of Joan's first year in Hollywood and the beginning of her first big push. The drama told the story of three showgirls with differing attitudes about love and paired Joan with Constance Bennett, the lead titular character, Sally O'Neill, and Joan's close friend, William Haynes. Joan was, of course, sharing the spotlight, and it would be a lie to say that she ran away with the film. If anything, Sally O'Neill did that for all the good it did her long term. But it did well enough at the box office, and especially as it coincided with the Wampuses list, early 1926 saw a huge bump in Joan's profile. Suddenly, Joan was everywhere. She was in Motion Picture Magazine, challenging Bessie Love to a dance-off. She was in photoplay, showing off the newest flapper fad, painting designs on the knees of your stockings to keep eyes firmly on those scandalously short hemlines. She was in an ad for Chapman's Fancy Ice Creams, holding an ice cream by her face, not eating it, saying, Oh boy, but it's good! She was in picture play, riding a bike in a shorts with tights outfits, circa 2012. Joan Crawford breaks into the classic so frequently that we hardly know what to do about it, said Motion Picture Classics' April 1926 issue. Just when we had made a resolution not to use her picture for a while, she went and was snapped, demonstrating a high kick. Do you blame us for breaking our resolution? It was an impressive high kick, after all. 1926 was clearly bringing buzz, but her output didn't necessarily match. MGM loaned her out to First National for Tramp, 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 as leading lady to star Harry Langdon. Harry was a popular silent screen comedian whose persona was as an innocent man-child. It didn't translate well to talkies when the time came in a couple of years. Joan played the object of his affection and wasn't given much to do but look pretty. Then there was The Boob, where she played the secondary female lead, but as her character was a prohibition agent, at least that was something to do, but the film was a stinker. As Variety wrote, it was a terrible picture, 
the worst made by Metro since its merger with Goldwyn and Mayer. And during the production, Joan had major issues with director William A. Wellman, who just loved harassing women on the set. Loved it. It was his hobby. Apparently his excuse for why it was totally fine to grab Joan without consent was that she had a reputation. To which I say, fuck off. Finally, there was Paris, which Motion Picture News called an inept story. She played an apache dancer in France, torn between two men. The main thing, of course, is that she got to dance, got to be at the center of the drama, and she looked great. There's one fun tidbit I found in the Exhibitor's Herald, April 17, 1926 issue that says, Joan Crawford finds clever ways to assure herself many close-ups. The trick? She sprained her ankle doing the dances for the film and couldn't be filmed for a couple of weeks in any shots that might expose her bandaged leg. Bingo, bingo, extra close-ups. Paris was released in May 1926, and it didn't really make much of a splash, despite some really excellent notices for Joan herself, as compiled by the Film Daily. This Joan Crawford is a lovely creature, fiery and unexpected, said one paper. Miss Crawford, a stunning beauty, puts over her role effectively, wrote another. And as one review noted, it displays for the first time, really, the exquisite loveliness of Joan Crawford. What's clear is that over the next year, MGM was still unsure just where to place Joan. The Hollywood Vagabond, a trade paper that prided itself on operating outside of the wampus influence, had an interesting piece on Joan in their May 12, 1927 issue called Little Girl in the Big City, an Embryo of Great Drama. Inside, they admit that she is still learning, but that she has the potential to be a big star. They question her studio, however, saying, There seems to be a rather vague and experimental regard for Joan Crawford on the part of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. It may be that they are allowing her to run the gamut for a semi-farcical drama, to died in the wool melodrama to determine her fitness for certain vehicles. Surely they must be more puzzled than ever, for she has acquitted herself with aplomb in all of these. This young lady can troop. They suggest that perhaps because Joan didn't fit squarely into a simple type, it was hard to focus her efforts to improve overall, but concluded. Joan Crawford has given her screen portrayals a touch of realism as well as romance. She has made her heroines plausible, and she has endued them with popular appeal. That is the mark of a capable actress. By that token, she is destined for a great and glorious adventure in the realm of the unreeling celluloid. MGM really was trying her out in all kinds of pictures in 1927, like throwing spaghetti at a wall to see what sticks. War dramas, comedies, adventure films. The horror film The Unknown with Lon Chaney, directed by Todd Browning, was her biggest film that year. Joan considered it to be not simply a big deal for her growing profile, but also an amazing learning opportunity. About Lon Chaney, she said, I learned from him to be so well-prepared that you can forget you're in a film studio and lose yourself. 
she again got good notices, but was there in support of the real star, Lon Chaney. This was repeated in the drama Twelve Miles Out with John Gilbert, one of the biggest romantic leading men of the silent era, and two films as William Haynes's leading lady, Spring Fever and the notably homoerotic West Point. Billy Haynes, as I mentioned, was a close friend of Jones and would be forever. He was also, during this period, one of the hottest young stars around. The next year, he'd land on the Quigley Top Ten Money-Making Stars poll. Lon Chaney and John Gilbert were already there. So while Joan was still not a star in her own right at all, she was being presented by MGM as being part of their world. Joan continued to dominate the fan magazines, appearing on the cover of Screenland's May 1927 issue and demonstrating all the steps to the latest dance craze, The Black Bottom, in Motion Pictures' March edition. Various profiles. Joan in a whirl. She doesn't wear lipstick in public. Odd headline, that one. The crux of the piece was that she's very mysterious. And photo shoots, like a very fun one with fellow MGM contract player Dorothy Sebastian on Santa Monica Beach. In October 1927, Joan, as part of her ongoing strategy to see and be seen, went to a play called Young Woodley with her friend and mentor, Paul Byrne. Her relationship with Mike Cudahy was over, his rich family's disapproval and Mike's own excessive drinking had put an end to that. Joan was single, her career was heating up, and when the lead of the play, a certain Douglas Fairbanks Jr. stepped out onto the stage, Joan was, well, quite bowled over. Doug Jr. was born on December 9, 1909, the son of mega-movie star Douglas Fairbanks Sr. and his first wife, Beth. If you're doing the math, that means he was just shy of his 18th birthday when the probably 21- or 22-year-old Joan spotted him on stage. As he put it later himself, that was fine by me, quite in accordance with my continuing preference for older women. Anyway, she evidently thought I was her contemporary. So Joan likely didn't know at first that they weren't the same age, and Doug Jr. wasn't about to disabuse her of that misconception. What Joan for sure thought of him was that he was really cute, a wonderful actor, graceful, and she was sure very sensitive. Paul offered to take her backstage and introduce her, but Joan chickened out. The next morning, having developed a full crush overnight, she sent him a telegram with her phone number. Within a few months, they were seriously entangled. If you take anything away from Joan's story, let it be that if she wanted something, she got it. Speaking of which, she wanted to star in a damn movie already. One of the most coveted screen roles of the year has been awarded to Joan Crawford, who will play the title role in Rosemarie, it said in Moving Picture World. Rosemarie, released in February 1928, was the first time Joan Crawford's name led the picture. Not above the title, but first listed. Unfortunately, it was also a silent adaptation of a musical, and that didn't really land with audiences. While she may have been the lead, it simply wasn't a star-making film. In addition, her role may have been 
coveted, but it wasn't very interesting. She followed up Rosemary with Across to Singapore, opposite Ramon Navarro, and again found herself frustrated by the passive nature of her character. Here was dynamic forward Joan, stuck playing aimless love interests, swept along by the plot with no agency of their own. Another problem was that MGM kept putting Joan, who was in all of the fan magazines being extremely modern, in period pieces. It doesn't make any sense to me, and it didn't make any sense to Joan. She started downright pestering Irving Thalberg to give her better roles. He told her to wait, but luckily she didn't have to wait too long. First, she appeared opposite John Gilbert again in Four Walls. When they'd worked on 12 Miles Out together the previous year, Joan had been excited to work with the great screen lover, only to find that he was distracted and depressed. This time around, Jack was in better spirits. Truly, when he was present and on, he was like a different person. Energetic, engaged, and a damn fine actor. The sad story of Jack Gilbert is that eventually his undulating highs and lows became untenable, and he had by then made a powerful enemy out of his boss, Louis B. Mayer. It's a story worth its own close-up. But back to Joan. In Four Walls, she finally got to play something interesting, a gangster's mole. And when she did so, she lit up the screen in a way she hadn't done before. Now you know as well as I do what Joan can do when she wants to, wrote Screenland's review of the film. She is one of the most devastating girls in pictures. She has a strain of unexpected steel in her, they continue, and she grabs him and she shakes him, and taunts him, and shames him into manhood. It's good stuff. The New York Evening World wrote that Joan simply walks off with the pitcher, stealing it right under the nose of John Gilbert. It was as if MGM didn't realize who they had on contract before. Finally, finally, a light bulb went on at the studio. But actually, to paint a more accurate analogy, Joan was the one flipping the switch. Rumors have long persisted about the casting of Our Dancing Daughters. One came directly from Joan, that she stole a copy of the script from MGM's script department, read it, fell in love with it, stormed into producer Hunt Stromberg's office, and demanded the part. Another rumored element of the story, which of course probably is just rumor, is that she stormed into Hunt's office and completely stripped nude and demanded the part, only to be told that it was director Harry Beaumont making the casting decisions, so she went off to his office and did the same thing. This is one of those stories usually told in a completely sexist and judgmental way. But if it's true, use your fucking head. She wasn't walking into either office to trade a peep of boob for a role, she was walking in there to show that she was bold enough, wild enough, sexy enough, and determined enough to play the bold, wild, sexy, and determined lead role of dangerous Diana Medford. However she got it, she got it. 
and Our Dancing Daughters, released September 1, 1928, was the breakout role of her career. Anita Page and Dorothy Sebastian were the other dancing daughters, and the film was all about the wild jazz age adventures of an untamable generation. It was a hit. Our Dancing Daughters, a picture that is the very mirror of the jazz age, is breaking records in nearly every theater in the country, said Photoplay. It's not a great work of art. It is not a great special like the big parade or what price glory. It has no great acting. It sets no new standard of direction. What, then, is the secret of the success of Our Dancing Daughters? It has youth. The whole story has been seen with the very eyes of youth. Its theme, that frankness is a virtue and hypocrisy the greatest evil, is a code that is held by millions of normal young men and women in this country. Suddenly, after nearly four years working towards her singular goal, Joan was undeniably a star. But she'd have her work cut out for her to prove that she was a star with staying power, a star worthy enough for true acceptance in Hollywood. Since they'd met in the autumn of 1927, Joan and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. had been going strong. They were frequently mentioned in the gossip columns and fan magazines, with plenty of speculation as to what was really going on with their romance. Here's the latest on the Joan Crawford Douglas Fairbanks Jr. affair, promised Photoplay in their July 1928 issue. Helen Costello is divorcing her husband, and the gossip hounds are wondering if that will mean a revival of interest on the part of Doug Jr. Mrs. Evans, Doug's mother, says that her son will never marry Joan. Joan and Doug Jr. have nothing to say at all, but they continue to be the most devoted young pair in Hollywood. Two issues later, they said, Talking with Doug Jr. the other day, Is there a way to kill that rumor that Helen Costello and I are, are going back together? He queried. I'm all wrapped up in Billy, and I want the world to know it. There was plenty of speculation wondering if they were already secretly married, which they did little to quell, calling each other husband and wife as casually as they had already walked down the aisle. In Doug, Joan saw her prince charming, a young sophisticate who wanted to protect her. In Joan, Doug saw not just her beauty, but her contrasts. Outwardly confident, inwardly delicate. He did always call her Billy, and she later said that he was one of the few people who knew the real her. In September 1928, they officially announced their engagement. So much for Doug Jr.'s mom's opinion. But let's talk about that. Full disclosure, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. is my favorite Hollywood Nepo baby. He was bright and funny, and his autobiography, The Salad Days, is truly wonderful. Because his father was Douglas Fairbanks and his stepmother was Mary Pickford, two of the biggest movie stars ever, young Doug was considered Hollywood royalty. Indeed, Mary Pickford was the queen of Hollywood high society, a tastemaker, and a gatekeeper. Doug Jr.'s mother was not of that world, though she certainly was an upper-crust sort of lady. She kept her one and only son on very short apron strings. Doug Sr., by contrast, kept his son at a distance. He had, like many of the most braggadocious among us, a fragile ego, 
sensitive about his own age, his son suddenly being grown up enough to bring home a woman like Joan Crawford chilled him to the core. All of this is to say, Joan was up against it when she was introduced to the family, and according to her anyway, they kind of hated her. Joan felt that Doug Sr. looked down on her, and that Mary was snobbish and cold, that Beth was appalled at her son marrying such a floozy. Doug Jr. wrote that it wasn't as bad or as personal as all that, his perspective being that Mary was perfectly pleasant, and that neither of his parents wanted him marrying anyone at all so young. The truth is probably some combination of their perspectives. Joan was from the wrong side of the tracks, and Mary Pickford had excluded young ladies like her before from the polite Hollywood social scene. Suddenly, here was a girl, not too different class-wise from, say, Clara Bow, showing up at Pickfair, Doug Sr. and Mary's grand estate, like she belongs there. A pearl-clutching moment, I'm sure. Beth, who depended on Doug Jr. emotionally and financially, did not want to have his attention divided, but, in true boy-mom fashion, was perfectly happy to take her anxieties out on the girlfriend rather than develop healthier boundaries. And Doug Sr., the aging movie star, was threatened by his teenage son being hot on his heels, especially with one of the most exciting new talents on his arm. And given that that exciting new talent was of the sexy, flapper, jazz baby persuasion, rather than the sweet, demure, old-fashioned heroine type that he was comfortable with, Joan's arrival on the scene would have been specifically upsetting. Doug Jr.'s side may have been less than impressed, but Joan's own family was thrilled with all of the developments the last year had brought. Her mother Anna, older brother Hal, and his wife, though she wasn't there long, all showed up ready to be catered to. Hal was a parasite and a drunk, and he made my life miserable, Joan was quoted as saying decades later. MGM was pretty thrilled, too. Our dancing daughters had been such a hit, and since everyone was eager to see more of this beautiful young couple, it was arranged for Doug Jr. to appear with Joan in 1929's Our Modern Maidens. It's a sort of companion piece to Our Dancing Daughters, and also featured Anita Page, who was in the first film, too. Another big hit for MGM, it was released on the heels of Joan and Doug's elopement in June 1929. Everyone wanted to see the newlyweds get married on screen, even though their characters don't end up together. Everyone wanted to see the newlyweds, period. Filmland's Royal Family, second edition, was Photoplay's headline on a profile of the couple. It attempts to dispel some misconceptions, namely the idea that Joan chose Doug for less romantic reasons. Was she just trying to improve her lot in life, just using him to join Hollywood High Society? Joan's love for Doug is constant, the piece says, but it would be easier for her if he were not of the House of Fairbanks. I'm sick of all this royal family stuff. Certainly I was a chorus girl. But I didn't stay one all my life, did I? They quote her as saying. Indeed, Joan was on a rapid rise when she met Doug and had freshly reached movie star status when they married. 
and he may have been born with a silver spoon in his mouth, whereas she scrubbed floors. But it isn't his social status that changed her, they argue. It was love. The pattern of Joan's life has changed. There's no doubt about that. The wild child with a restless, groping soul and an ever-questioning, never-answered intelligence, who won dancing cups at Montmartre and Coconut Grove, who spent her money as freely as her affections, has become a poised young matron. But it isn't because she married Douglas Fairbanks, Jr. It is because she married the man she loves. The truth is, no, Joan didn't marry Doug in order to improve her lot in life, though she did find his apparent sophistication appealing. But after falling in love with him, her inferiority complex, with its seeds planted in her barely-there education and the rejections and withholdings of her childhood, kicked in. She went about trying to improve herself and make herself worthy of being married to Douglas Fairbanks, Jr., despite the fact that she already was the person he fell in love with. Billy. Our Modern Maidens was Joan's final silent film. She followed it up, rounding out 1929 with her first talkie, Untamed. I recently saw Untamed for the first time, and well, I kind of hate it when people conflate film characters and plots with the real-life stories of the actors. Something about the movie, even though it's a bit silly, speaks of Joan herself. In it, she plays Bingo, the daughter of an oil prospector in South America. He raised her outside of polite society. All she knows is a world filled with roughnecks and dancing in the mud. She's wild, like a little kid, but quick and able to defend herself if need be. After her father dies, she suddenly inherits a fortune and is taken by her guardian by boat to New York City. Well, at sea, she just can't behave herself. There's a wonderful moment where her guardian scolds her for not wearing shoes and then asks if she's wearing the other thing he told her to wear, to which Bingo proudly lifts her skirt right over her head to prove that, yes, she is wearing underwear. This time. Soon, still in the boat, she meets the first high-society young man she's ever seen, played by Robert Montgomery. It helps that he's really hot, so she falls in love with him. And she stays in love with him, despite outside forces tearing them apart. Once she's in New York, she's transformed into all of the trappings of a society girl, still wilder than many, but acceptable in this world of money. Until the very end of the picture, where it seems as though Robert Montgomery is going to leave her for another girl, and her true, untamable spirit comes out. I end here because by late 1929, her transformation was already well underway into not a movie star, but the movie star. Thank you for listening to this special episode of the Old Movie Lady podcast, Close Up, Joan Crawford, Wampus Star of 1926. I'll tell you more of her story one day. If you've been enjoying the show, please leave a review, spread the word on your socials, follow me on Instagram, TikTok, I don't know, graffiti a bathroom. For a good time, listen. I've been your host, Marg, the old movie lady, an unholy mess 
of a girl.